How Was Your Weekend by Rachel A.G. Gilman Published at sledgehammerlit.com Whenever I feel the sort of urge to kill myself on Saturdays, I try taking a walk instead. I get up from my couch, put on the only comfortable pair of shoes I've yet to wear the heels out of, and head down my building stairs that always smell like they need cleaning or as if they've just been cleaned. There's nothing in between. Then I'm off. I take a right, then a left, then a diagonal path through the park to head downtown, past the places that I used to pass on my way to work, to class, to dinners, to dinner dates, all of the stuff I don't do anymore. I see couples looking both ways before they cross against the advice of traffic lights. I spend the most time watching the ones that I know I will never look like. The girls in the vintage Levi's that don't fit people with stomachs, paired with the boys who figured out how to keep their white, overpriced sneakers clean. Every time one of them passes me, I notice the woman reaching for the man's hand, trying to get the message across that I should probably stop staring at her boyfriend's ankles which is admittedly most of the time where my gaze goes. I'm strangely attracted to men's ankles, particularly when the trousers are so short that I can get a peek of the socks. Even more so if the dude is riding a bicycle and has the cuffs unevenly rolled so they don't get caught in the gears. Ankles make me feel something warm for once. It's actually a good thing I don't ride a bike because I probably would have accidentally killed myself on it by now. Staring at ankles instead of street signs. Or maybe that wouldn't be the worst thing. Throwing my life away for some goddamn good bony ankles. At least it'd be a story. I continue walking the streets that I used to frequent as an undergrad, smiling a little at the boys who are alone and who feel like they should be fair game, before remembering that a preschooler's lifespan occupies the years between us and now. That I am nowhere near old, but I will never be that young again. Memories start clogging up my eyes. The convenience store where I bought endless plastic water bottles and packages of dark chocolate peanut butter cups and sometimes other things if there was someone I was talking to who I didn't want to leave. The now-closed Vietnamese place where my non-fiction professor bought me booze at 19 to celebrate my first reading during which I learned the strategies for being able to speak to a crowd while metaphorically cutting open a vein. Next to the Italian restaurant turned dumpling place turned coffee shop where I first tried, and failed, to tell a boy that I thought I loved him. All of the corners where I said goodnight to someone that I was afraid of one day losing, and that I now have. I get caught up in construction outside one of the dorms that once played house to one of my favourite humans. Stopped, I notice an attractive guy with dark, tousled hair smiling down at a blonde gal with a thick ponytail, just like the one I used to have. One not yet traumatised by twenty-something stress. It's so obvious they want to kiss each other. I want to yell across, Do it! Do it while you still can! I'm depressed today, remember. Not insane, so I don't. Instead, I allow myself to be bumped by two girls carrying a pizza from the famous joint on the corner that I stopped going to once I graduated and learned what slices that cost more than a dollar taste like. Girls who got extra piercings in their ears at mall kiosks when it was rebelliously appropriate at 15, instead of at the bougie, overpriced place in Soho 
like I did at almost 25, with a golden Amex and lots and lots of blood. I walk away faster and faster, feeling tears springing to my eyes as I think about the person I would like to be holding hands with right now, the person I should have kissed in front of that dorm, the person who doesn't even exist in the way that I want him anymore because I don't exist in that way either. I walk into the grocery store where I've been a loyalty member for five years to catch my breath, hanging out in the frozen food aisle to see who else might show up because it's too difficult to learn how to cook for one. I try to be optimistic, but it's mostly just widowers that even after years without still wear their wedding bands or young men helping each other carry boxes of beer and jumbo Gatorade bottles because almost 30 will never mean the same thing to them as whatever it feels like to me. Eventually, I make my way home with a week's supply of yoghurt to help swallow my pills, even though the bottle advises me to lay off dairy. I listen to everyone in neighbouring bars having the kind of fun I can't remember how to have and cry in small spurts for people that I know I should be out of tears for and for reasons that really have no responses. Itchy, suddenly from my unwashed hair, an untapped potential, perhaps. Closing the apartment door, I fill my stomach with an undercooked microwavable meal. I'll end up throwing most of it out, which is a small improvement from not so long ago when I was throwing most of it up. And then I'll drink water, because at least it will fill my empty holes and clear up my skin. Because at least this all means that the knives spent one more day asleep in their protective sleeves. Lou Lost in the World by M.E. Proctor I met Lou last spring. I was working on a restaurant fire. A very small case. A junior investigator should have taken it, but we were short-handed and my boss asked me to jump in. These cases are a dime a dozen. A disgruntled employee decides he can't stand the chef and sets fire to the kitchen. Or the owner figures he can get more from the insurance company and from the daily slog and the grueling working hours. Sometimes the fire is a real accident. This one wasn't. Carlos's bistro didn't spontaneously combust. I prefer more challenging investigations, but priceless masterpieces aren't stolen every single day. Or maybe they are, but they're not insured by the company I work for. I had just emerged from a protracted multiple car pileup and I was ready for something that did not involve fickle breaks and improbable ice patches in April. Carlos's greasy spoon was a welcome change of pace. I went to the burnt pile and poked around. The fire had started somewhere between the back of the kitchen and the owner's office. The restaurant was old, the electrical wiring was years out of code, and the arson specialist couldn't rule out a short. I interviewed the wait staff. Lou Morton had been working there the longest, three months, and she knew everybody. Lou was funny. She made me laugh. She told stories about the owner, the chef and his helper. There was the usual bickering between the waitstaff and the kitchen staff with Carlo fanning the fires. No pun intended. People didn't stay in the job long enough for grievances to have time to fester. I worked the case for a week and concluded that the staff had no motive to burn the place down. I moved on to Carlos's finances. A deep dive into the books revealed that he was leveraged to the hilt 
and fudging his tax reporting. You've had to close, he might as well go out with a bang. I submitted my report and closed the file. I didn't close it completely. I should have walked away from Lou Morton. It would have been the smart thing to do. Lou was 21, a college student. If I'd stayed married to Susan, we might have had a daughter that age. This little fling had disaster written all over it. For me, not for Lou. She was a kid, elastic and waterproof. Tears would glide off her like a spring shower on a new raincoat. Not so on my errate umbrella. I had the good sense to be scared of what I was about to set in motion. The fear lasted a couple of days. Then I lined up all the bad reasons middle-aged men invest in to justify doing stupid things. Most of these reasons can be wrapped up in three words. Life is short. I had experienced breakage many times before. I was familiar with the shards, the cuts and the scars. I thought I was well weathered. Lou moved in with me. She didn't make bones about it. She was overjoyed. No more rent to pay, food in the fridge. She was like a bird that had locked on a comfy birdhouse with an adjacent feeder. Opportunistic, mercenary, absolutely. Could I proudly wave the banner of moral propriety? Hell no. I was too busy licking my chops. That entire summer I was happier than I'd ever been. We went for long drives in the country and to the seaside on Sundays. I bought ice cream and waffles. Cholesterol be damned. And I made the mistake of believing there was no shadows in the Garden of Delights. Fall came. Lou got a job at a brasserie downtown. She was seldom home before midnight. I was too tired for conversation or love. I told her she didn't need the job. I could help with college expenses. We were friends. It was what friends did. I didn't dare say we were lovers. I was afraid she would laugh. Lou refused my offer. I liked that she did. I thought, the girl wants to stand on her own. But that wasn't it. Trouble was coming our way with the winds of November. Lou came home later and later. Some nights she didn't come home at all. Some days she was too sick to go to her classes. Then she gave up on college altogether. I'm a good investigator and I know the signs. I didn't want to believe Lou was using. I had to make certain. I followed her. I went to the brasserie where she worked, sat in my car and watched. Her shift was over shortly after midnight, but instead of taking a cab to go home, she walked around the corner and disappeared in the narrow streets of the old downtown. I went after her. All cities have parts of town better avoided at night. Some of these parts aren't even safe in daylight. Lou led me to a notorious square. The early morning garbage collectors that picked up restaurant and cafe trash gathered enough needles, empty baggies and condoms to clog a landfill. The cops carried out occasional raids and arrested the dealers and the customers that didn't run fast enough. It didn't change anything. Trafficking slowed down for a few days and then it all went back to where it was before with a similar cast of characters. I didn't know what to do. Why would you listen to me? What authority did I have? Over the past weeks, she barely talked to me. Yet, I couldn't ignore what I'd seen in the square. I keep going as if nothing had happened. I knew what came next. She would ask for money. I would empty my wallet and steal my credit cards. 
I couldn't drop her as if she never existed. I had to help her. I confronted Lou at home and she denied everything. I couldn't get through to her and things got worse. She didn't come back home for three nights in a row, sleeping who knew where or not sleeping at all, doing who knew what. One of my police contacts told me they planned to raid the town square and clean up the area. I was tempted to tell her nothing. Maybe an arrest with the shock she needed to get her life in order. I couldn't do it. That isn't me. I warned Lou. It turned out worse than if I hadn't told her anything. She accused me of using my despicable police connections to try to intimidate her. She didn't care about the cops. They could all go fuck themselves. Her friends knew how to deal with them. We'd had heated arguments before, but never anything that violent. She slammed the door on her way out, swearing I would never see her again. It was an empty threat. Her belongings were all over the condo. I didn't see or hear from her for a week. I gave a few phone calls and called in some favours. Lou had not been arrested. She came back home while I was at work, grabbed her stuff and left her key in the mailbox. I should have let it go. As if I could. As I said, that isn't me. I went back to the town square where Lou met her dealer. The warning about police activity had made the rounds and the square was almost deserted. A few shadows wandered about, but there was very little business being conducted. If the cops chose that night to hit, the pickings would be slight. I didn't see Lou that night, but I recognised the young man she talked to the last time. He wore the same clothes and stood in the same spot as before. Dealers, like hookers, had their assigned street corner. The young man didn't linger. I don't tail suspects anymore, either on foot or by car, but the old reflexes are still keen. This wasn't difficult surveillance. My target was unaware and unworried. The streets were empty. Even so, there were enough dark corners and parked cars to provide cover. The dealer went into an old building near the post office. One of these soon-to-be-demolished places with cheap eateries on the ground floor and crappy apartments upstairs. Nobody living there expects anything permanent. Urban nomads that pack and move with their possessions in plastic bags or cardboard boxes. I hid in the entrance of a Chinese grocery store on the other side of the street. I wanted to make sure the dealer lived there and wasn't making a delivery. I had already decided I would come back the next night and the night after that until I found Lou no matter how long it took. The dealer had a routine. He always left shortly before midnight and was back an hour later. He had two places of business, the square and the narrow street near the post office. He met a few regulars every night. During the day, he worked at a second-hand record store that also sold books and band t-shirts. The place reeked of patchouli and weed. A few days later, on a rainy night, I spotted Lou with the dealer in the town square. The police raid surprised everybody. In the confusion, I almost lost sight of Lou. She was hiding in a doorway, in the shadows. Once the cops got busy searching the suspects, she managed to slip away. I was right behind her. Lou walked fast and kept close to the facades, staying out of the streetlights. I called her name and she turned. She raised her hands as if trying to push me away and ran. I went after her. I'm not as quick as I used to be. I was close when she turned into a brightly lit street. The cobblestones were wet and I slipped. I landed hard on my knees 
It hurt like hell. I pulled myself up and kept going. Lou had a good lead by now. She could shake me off easily. Lots of little narrow streets in this good old town. Cafes and restaurants were busy with the after-theatre and concert crowds. Cars and cabs zipped by, ferrying the Friday night party-goers. I stopped to get my bearings. I heard the squeal of tyres, screams, followed by blaring horns. I knew, right away, that it was Lou. I walked to the site of the accident. She was already dead. She had crossed in the middle of traffic and stumbled. There was nothing the cab driver could have done to avoid her. If I'd let go. But that isn't me. Child by Wilson Cohen I knew little about the child, except that his grandmother was a second grade teacher at the elementary school I attended when I myself was a child so many years ago. I'd heard she was a disciplinarian, and I was happy then to be put in the class of the other second grade teacher. I only knew any of this because my mother told me as we rode by their home in the rural Piedmont of South Carolina. I'd commented on the beauty of the yard, and she mentioned who lived there. The yard was large and freshly mowed. The modest brick house had a front porch swing. Some distance away stood a massive oak, its branches tendrilled so far out they almost reached the roof of the house. The child was buried under the tree. He was her grandson. He'd gotten paediatric cancer at the age of four, and that's how old he was when he died. St. Jude's couldn't save him. It had been the child's quest to be buried under the tree. I don't know why the child requested this, but I can easily guess he liked to play in the shade of the oak during the brutal, humid South Carolina summers. The leaves on the trees and the grass seem greener in South Carolina, especially on endless summer days without clouds, where you come to understand the term Carolina blue. For whatever reason, the sky never appears bluer anywhere in the world than in South Carolina. It was told to me, or perhaps I said it to myself, that no story can possess beauty unless it first acknowledges the inherent sadness in all of our existences. Then it can be beautiful. Beautiful like the child must have believed the shade under the oak tree to be. I imagined him under that tree, though I don't know what he looked like or even his name pushing a yellow dump truck toy, or blowing bubbles to chase, marvelling at insects crawling in the grass, gazing across the expanse to the tops of other distant trees, hoping to glimpse a hint of breeze, aware, even though he had a very short life, of the beauty that can be held in a place, a home, a place he wanted some part of him to always be. To Forgive and Forget by B.F. Jones Anna looks at the battered van parked on their drive, at the two men coming out, slamming the doors behind them. The first one is tall and muscular, wearing tattered jeans, trainers and a leather jacket over his black jumper. He's completely bald. If it wasn't for his vacant gaze, he'd be a double of Bruce Willis, Anna reckons 
as she sips coffee. The second man is smaller and skinny, almost of a different scale. His mid-length, mousy hair is greasy and in disarray, and his overbite completes his rat-like demeanour. She turns back to her husband, her eyebrows raised, knowing that asking about who the odd duo is will lead to yet another fight, and she isn't really in a position to question much, what with the whole affair business. That's why she keeps her comment to herself. That's why she shut her mouth when Doug said no. He didn't want the kitchen extension, just for the double doors to open onto a new, bigger patio. That's why she didn't say anything when he redecorated the lounge, knowing he picked the aggressive yellow just to piss her off, and knowing she'd be suffering those small acts of revenge until he forgave her, if he ever did. She hadn't meant to start an affair. She'd been friendly with the guy from her running club since the beginning, Patrick. A bit of a loner, old-fashioned, a book and art collector who spent all his free time reading and running. A technophobe, who still owned one of those indestructible Nokia phones and made fun of her for taking pictures of everything and never having them printed. He was kind, funny, and brought back the person she used to be before she started her perfectly dull life with Doug. Somehow Doug had found out, and that had been the end of the story. She stopped going to the running club. She never saw Patrick after that. She texted him once, and he messaged her back a couple of days later, saying he was moving away and not to get in touch. The tone was cold. She knew he was moving away because of her, so she respected his wishes. Doug and her agreed to move on from that episode and resumed their glossy, married life. Forgive and forget. They had even gone back to having a semblance of occasional fun. Going out as they used to do, having their friends over for dinner, friends completely unaware of her indiscretion and grief. Some days, Patrick's absence was intolerable, the pain physical, the feel of large hands plunging inside her chest and twisting her thorax, choking her, and she'd go to bed pretending a migraine, silently sobbing on her mauve satin pillowcase. Other times it was almost unnoticeable. A small fruit fly she'd swat away while she went on with her activities. On those days, she could almost convince herself that none of this ever happened, that her bored mind had made up a chimera. She'd drink wine and let Doug have sex with her, faking her orgasms to the rhythm of his irritating coming noises, creeping out to the garden to light up as soon as they were done, enjoying the rush of nicotine and the feel of cold grass under her bare feet. But today isn't one of those days. Anna nurses a sizable hangover with a large cup of coffee, trying to chase her far too realistic Patrick dreams, aching inside and out, shaking with alcohol and sorrow. The apparition of those guys is so different to the crowd, perfect Doug generally mixes with. Something about them puts her on edge, the skinny one in particular. How strong is that guy? He effortlessly heaves a large bag of cement onto his shoulder and carries it across the drive, through the garden back alley, and onto where the patio will be. He drops it 
and immediately goes back for a second and a third. In the meantime, vacant Bruce unloads the slats of wood and piles them neatly on the ground for Ratboy to pick up and carry out back. After a few more minutes of watching the ballet of, of mice and men and another cup of coffee, Anna gets bored and goes out for a run. Clear the cobwebs, the anguish, the premises. By the time she's back and showered, the garden is unrecognisable. There's fresh cement covering a large square outside the kitchen doors, and Anna has to admit those guys work fast. Ratboy eyes are up and down for longer than necessary, and she feels her shoulders curl inwards. Her arms cross involuntarily, and she rushes back inside. Two weeks later, and the job is done. What do you think? Doug's arm tightens around her waist as they look at the new patio. Once again, Anna must admit the creeps have done a good job, but she's happy to see the back of them. Four years on, when Doug dies unexpectedly, she's happy to see the back of him too. She wonders if it was his increasingly poor sleep quality or his sudden high blood pressure that did it. She might check it out at some stage. Not today though. Today, she's getting a kitchen extension. She looks out through the double doors as they pull the patio apart, one slat at the time. And with each rip, she feels a weight releasing from her shoulders, the grief of the past few years easing, a sense of peace. They find the battered Nokia first. Looking surprisingly fine, consider it's been buried there for God knows how long. Mike jokes as you try and plug it in and see if it still works. The amusement drains from his face minutes later, when his spade uncovers battered tarp that seems to contain human remains. <laughs>